from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 30, The Big 3-0. November, what? First, 2022 is when we recorded it. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell. I'm amazed by numbers and the passage of time. And I'm joined, as always, by our director of strategy. And Parrot Analytics is also director of strategy, Julia Alexander. Julia, can you believe it? 30 and November. <laughs> I, I wish I had one tenth of the energy you have on a Tuesday and Tuesday morning for you. Like uh, I yeah. wish this, it's, it's, it's <laughs> either this or the podcast doesn't happen. I got to I, I drink a couple of cups of tea and, you know, and then and then 9 a.m. podcasting. This is my life. I chose it here. Here we are. Are you uh, a tea person a great, more than a coffee a tea person? person? Yeah, I am a tea person. There's a whole podcast coming out fairly soon where I talk about the thing that I use to make tea because I use a machine called that I call the tea robot. That is not its name uh, that automatically makes it. You load it up and press a button and then walk away and it beeps when it's done. It's great. It's great. Anyway, I, I have a lot of tea because of that. <laughs> if you hadn't guessed. I got a lot of tea. And my, and my wife went went out this morning to have uh, to have uh, tea with uh, friends of hers. And so she left me an extra cup. Oh, rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. Oh, so I've got a little extra here uh, can, to drink during the podcast. Can I just set the, the stage for the podcast with my voice? Can I just get ahead of it? Because I have mm. what is not COVID. It's just a run of the mill flu, not flu. It's a cold, it's a cold. But I sound like a version of myself, I suppose. And so I told Jason before we started, but for all of our listeners, if you're friends, people like the show friends or if you're friends in real life. If you um, are friends, yeah. If you, uh, there's an episode where Phoebe realizes that she sounds better singing when she's sick, so she just she just tries to get sick again. So we're kind of hoping that that's what this is. That maybe this is actually the better podcasting voice. This is so your, I'm just setting the stage. Your podcast <laughs> voice is what you're saying. Yeah, Pod, exactly. Podcast voice. All right. Well, um, let's get into it. I fun list of topics here. Uh, wanted to start with Peacock. Uh, Peacock searching for an identity. We have talked here before. I, I find this really fun sometimes that I see these think pieces about like, uh, uh, oh, Peacock is making some changes and, and they think about like, why, you know, Peacock has struggled with comedy. And I think we covered this. <laughs> we did it already. Just listen to downstream, everybody. NBC, great comedy brand. Great comedy brand. You just mentioned Friends. Like, historic comedy brand has done a pretty good job of bringing comedies into the world. Um, and they tried it on Peacock, and it basically kind of didn't work. Not that the the comedies weren't weren't good, because I think they did some good comedies, mm -hmm. but it never seemed to have any traction. It's not... Uh, it's not what is going to get people to watch Peacock, I think. And so it seems like maybe they have abandoned comedy as a strategy for Peacock. The example uh, that was in the news this past week is um, Girls 5 Eva, which is a show produced by Tina Fey, uh, written by one of uh, the, the the showrunner is one of Tina Fey's old writers from 30 Rock and she's running Girls 5 Eva. It's a funny show. <laughs> I like it. And uh, was a writer a great... on um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt for Unbreakable, that Netflix yeah, connection. It's Meredith. Oh, what's her name? I can't remember. It's now. Anyway. Scar Scarpino or something. It's with an S. I remember. Yeah. It's and she and it's a good show with a good cast. It's a funny show. They've done. Two, you may never have heard of it. Uh, they've done two seasons on Peacock. Season three and season one and two uh, will move as well. Are going to Netflix mm -hmm. from Peacock. So it is really NBC essentially handing Girls Five Eva and a Tina Fey produced show and a show that feels very much like an NBC kind of show, handing it off to Netflix. And I had. I had some Cobra Kai vibes as well from this, which is, are we going to see it again where a show that was on somewhere where nobody saw it is going to get handed to Netflix and become a sensation because Netflix, I want, and that there's already a catalog of 20 episodes or 16 episodes or whatever it is when they debut uh, their third season. So people will be able to rip into it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How, how, how do you feel about this? Uh, is it, is it just a, a I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a bad move. It's just a wow kind of move of them saying, you know, comedy's not working on Peacock. That's it's a, it. It's a smart move on both sides. Like, like on when I looked at this, this is one of the rare deals where you kind of look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, kind of more like Cobra Kai than even Manifest right? or You. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, you know what? That makes a ton of sense because at the core of it, 
So, I mean, the first part of this is that there's always, before we get into like why it makes sense from like a straight content level, there's also this very, very funny, but like traditional Hollywood relationship thing at play. So the head of the VP of comedy for Netflix right now came from Universal Television. The uh-huh. head of global t- of con- uh, TV for Netflix is Bella Pajara, who was the head of Universal Television. Mm. Tina Fey has a very strong relationship and Robert Carlocker producing partner. Thank you. Uh, with um, with both them and, and Universal Television. So there's this whole thing of like, also, as, as we mentioned earlier, like the showrunner of the show was a writer on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So knows the Netflix team from there. There's kind of this whole like, th- this makes sense. This just feels like people who are, are friends with each other, who have worked together for many years and are kind of like, well, we like this project and therefore we think we should work together again. So that's part of it, right? Also, Universal TV and Netflix have a very strong relationship with comedies. Then we can get into like the content strategy, which Jason touched upon very, very smartly just a few minutes ago. Comedies, it's not that comedies don't necessarily work for Peacock. It's that Peacock is trying to define what does work for it. And the only way that it can do that is by having an actual customer base. The only way that they can say is like, this works for us or this doesn't work for us. And at the core of that question is, you know, this title is more valuable to have on our platform than to sell it, which was the core of this deal. Um, It was the opposite of that. They really have to have a substantial user base, subscriber base of like, you know, 25, 30 million domestically to understand what that is. So if we look at what Peacock is doing, Girls 5 Eva is part of a pretty major programming strategy shift at Peacock, which has moved away from like, we're going to do the absurdist comedy, even the Saved by the Bell type stuff. We're going to move away from that. Rutherford Falls. We're going to move away even from like kind of the big prestige dramas that they were chasing after with something like Bel Air. What they're going to do, from what I can see, is double down on what works for them. Double down on the Bravo, double down on the sports, the news, double down on the kind of lifestyle television. Mm. And I think it makes a ton of sense. If you think of who the Peacock audience should be, it isn't the, the Netflix and HBO Max audience. It's the like cable cutters who are looking for a cheap replacement to cable and want what they basically get already. And what is that? It's Peacock and Paramount Plus. It is like, here's your sports, here's your news, here's all the shows that you like on broadcast and cable, and right. here's we're going to expand upon that universe. Then you can, you have TV channels, you can put on the background. That's what I think they want to do. So if you look at Girls 5 Eva, at the core of the question of that deal is, did it make more sense to keep that show on the platform where they'd have to pay for it month after month? Like there's amortization fees that come with it. Or did it, does it make more valuable if you do the, if you model out the five-year projection, does that show inherently see more value in being sold to a Netflix, even understanding that that show is probably going to do better on Netflix because of that global base than it was going to do on Peacock? So that's the Peacock side. The Netflix side is if you look at its core market, which is the United States and Canada, which has seen a decline in subscribers over the last year, if you add up all their, 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 their quarters, they have a um, loss of about 640 or 680,000 subscribers in total, if I, if I remember correctly, um, even despite some growth uh, in the last last quarter in the uh, earlier in the year. So if we look at that market, what we're seeing is this potential ceiling for subscribers where they're maybe hitting what they're going to hit in terms of acquisition without the advertising tier. So what they have to focus on in that market is retention. And we know that comedy is a way better retention tool um, and, and pr- procedural comedies in, in, in general are a much better retention tool than the big dramas. And so Netflix has The Crown and Queen's Gambit and Stranger Things, and you come in for that. But then you stay for Grey's Anatomy and Seinfeld. We've talked about this on the podcast. And so when you have that idea, what Netflix wants is the type of comedies that can run four or five seasons that have that base, that watch it over and over again, like a new girl, but they want to own it. Because you know what's going to become very expensive to Netflix in a few years? Seinfeld again. New Girl again. Though Grey's Anatomy. Those shows are going to become very expensive because all the suppliers who are the big broadcasters selling them these things know that. They know that this is really important to Netflix and its core market. And so I think if you add those two sides together, it's one of the rare deals. Kind of like what you said, Jason, with, with Cobra Kai and then YouTube moving away from it and YouTube seeing an opportunity to sell to Netflix and Netflix building into a global sensation. There's this like potential for both sides to walk away pretty happy from a deal, which is rare in Hollywood. Um, but that seems to be what happened here. It makes me wonder when you start about th- thinking about things that uh, Universal, NBC Universal pulled back, um, you know, is The Office going to go back to Netflix at some point? Do you think The Office was part of the big strategy, right? Of like Peacock was we're going to own The Office and we're yeah. going to do it all. And I, I, I see this and I think, huh, maybe 
Maybe that was the old strategy. Maybe it doesn't make as much sense. Maybe The Office is not as valuable to Universal, NBC Universal, on Peacock as it would be on Netflix. When uh, when we ran the numbers for this at Parrot, we saw that The Office basically broke even for, for Peacock, made a little bit of revenue. So it's not that Peacock's losing a lot of money on The Office, and I think they still need, as they build up their subscriber base, I think having something like The Office, which is being more consumed by younger audiences on YouTube and clips and TikTok than it is in full on the platform. But that audience that comes in for, the, you know, that kind of cable cutting audience a little bit older that comes in for Peacock, I think would appreciate having The Office as something mm. to, co- to go back to. But if we look at what happened with The Office before, right, The Office, th- this is kind of the, the fun lore behind the show. Before The Office moved to Peacock, there was a team at NBC Universal that ran a small streaming service dedicated to comedy called CISO. And the argument from the CISO strategy team was we should bring The Office back to us exclusively because it's huge on Netflix and we think it can be huge for us and be a cornerstone to, la- cornerstone to launching the streaming service, which guess what turns out with the same idea the Peacock team had, you know, years later. Uh, they said no, because there's two different teams inside all these companies. There's this, you know, the, the team that programs and builds up the streaming service. And then there's your distribution and sales team. And so the distribution and sales team says, okay, cool. Well, you guys, here's your bid. Just because we belong to the same company means you still have to bid on it. Here's what you're going to do. Turns out we if you're going to give us 40 million or 50 million, whatever it might be, like 100 million for the show, Netflix is going to give us 200 million dollars for the show. And that is effectively what happened at Netflix in, or with The Office back then. They Netflix doubled down on its uh, bid for The Office. And so NBC Universal's distribution team gave The Office like another five years to Netflix for that reason. And then when Peacock came around, NBC Universal didn't want to make the same mistake. So I think if you look at that type of show, the office is arguably more valuable to Netflix now, but if Peacock is continued to be invested in by NBC Universal and Comcast, which from all reporting it seems to be the case, then having a cornerstone sitcom or comedy that helps retain those subscribers that are coming in from football and sports and whatever it might be, Bravo or whatever it is, that becomes quintessential to the Peacock package to being able to sell at that price point to, to consumers. And so I think it doesn't make sense to give it back to Netflix just yet. I think it's a question to ask in another four or five years, even three to five years, you know, where is Peacock then? Then the question of, okay, well, isn't this show more valuable to something like a Netflix or an HBO Max and they'll pay us twice what we're making on it now? Maybe then we have that conversation. The uh, Another note that I wanted to throw in here that uh, dovetails well with what you're saying about uh, who is Peacock and Paramount Plus, by the way, for is that Peacock announced a streaming alliance with Hallmark, which seems to be exactly what you're talking about here, about getting more kind of uh, that content on the service that if you're you're a cord cutter and you're like, well, how do I replicate some of the stuff that I found on cable, on streaming, uh, that this seems to be a pretty pretty clever deal to get uh, all that Hallmark content onto Peacock. Exactly. And I think what Peacock is now looking at, if I have to imagine, is where are these, and this is something that we talk to clients about all the time, and it's something that companies are always looking at, so technically what their, you know, corporate strategy teams are always looking at. The, it is it is what third-party partnerships are available for us to enter, for us to look at, uh, in order to kind of grow our subscriber base or add more value. And so if we think about um, CBS or Paramount, rather, partnering with Walmart, right? Like that type of situation. If we think about Hulu partnering with Spotify, like that type of relationship, um, Apple and and uh, the telecoms, like all the telecoms partnering with all the different streaming services. So Hallmark is kind of like quintessential. Like when you think of who the Peacock audience is, Hallmark is the quintessential uh, um, right. backbone to what that can be. Like think of how well those, like, um, those types of movies do for Netflix and just and even for the Hallmark channel by itself, like there's a huge audience for it. And there's an audience that will watch it again and again and again over the course of three, four months, and then even throughout the year. And so if we think about what Peacock is and how Peacock can bring in subscribers, especially over the next two to three months, the Hallmark channel is the perfect way to do that, especially at the low price point that Peacock has. And Hallmark wants to be associated with a lot of the content that's on NBC, that's on Peacock, right? Like there's a huge overlap between the NBC Universal procedural comedy unscripted world um and the hallmark audience and then you know i always say this and it's a terrible it's not even that's a terrible term it's just the most like industry basic term but if we kind of look at the 
stereotypical keyword, gender stereo, um, um, gender stereotypes that come with a lot of these streaming services when they're looking at which audiences to reach. Peacock is kind of the like familial thing. It's got like football for dad and like Hallmark for mom. And then the universal movies for family when you're watching a family movie. And then there's the um, animated content for kids or whatever it might be. Like all of that type of stuff creates at, at, at the price point that Peacock is, including with ads, makes for a really promising streaming service. It's just it's been really hard for them to find their way in to get people to real to, to to sign up when they get a lot of that out of Netflix already. They get a lot of that out of the Disney streaming bundle. They get a lot of that out of YouTube, like by itself. Um, and this kind of feels like, oh, if I can instead of having cable, if I can just sign up for Peacock and I get Hallmark movies over the next two to three months, I'll just do that. And then once they're in, the bet is that there's enough content that people who like Hallmark are invested in that they'll stay retained. So it won't be a high churn situation which you see with really big shows sometimes in big movies that come to streaming services, like when um, Hamilton hit Disney Plus and it saw huge growth, then huge turn because there just wasn't anything for the that audience specifically to watch. So I think everything that's been happening with Peacock this week is interesting and I think also extremely positive. It's, it's a rare week when Peacock is in the news and it's like super positive. Mm-hmm. Like they know they're, they're getting a better idea of who they are and what their strategy is and right. leaving the kind of we're throwing spaghetti at the wall part of their launch behind and instead trying to adjust along the way. Something that we've talked about here before that I find fascinating about a service like Peacock uh, is, you know, we talk about about fast, right? Free ad streaming TV stuff. And that, and that can be on demand or, or there can be live channels. Um, and then there's premium where you can you can have ads on some of them. And then the high end stuff, you can pay to not see the ads. But on demand uh, is only part of the story for a product like Peacock. It has all these live channels, which I think is kind of interesting. And some of the live channels are virtual live channels. They're literally like just an office shuffle or whatever. But they also have some actual live channels. And part of the deal with Hallmark is like as if Peacock was a cable company, which it is. It's owned by a cable company. But still, I think it's interesting that the Hallmark channel, it's all of its linear channels um, so it's Hallmark Channel, Hallmark, Hallmark Movies and Mysteries, and Hallmark Drama. Those linear channels will stream on Peacock. So if you cancel cable, but you want to turn on the Hallmark Channel and see what's on, which is you know a very old school kind of idea, you'll be able to do it on P- Peacock. Plus, there'll be on demand stuff. So I I'm fascinated by that too. It it if there is ever a sign that we're just rebuilding cable TV on the internet, this is it. Um, but I, I like the idea because I do really believe that there is something to be said for I just want to uh, turn on a channel and I don't care what it is. And, you know, what the, whatever's on that channel, that's all the filtering I want to do at this point. I just want it to wash over me. I think that there's a place for that in in this strategy. And so I think it's interesting that that part of this deal is for linear channels to be carried on Peacock. Fascinating. Very, very interesting. Yeah. So. All right, Peacock. We talked about you. Look at that. Um, okay. I mean, we don't always, uh, no, it's, it's, it's funny to talk about them in this context. Okay. I, I'm going to move on to some nerd related news, I guess. I mean, so much of what we talk about here is nerdy news, but this is a, so, uh, big story, I think fascinating story because it's such an oddball. So Dr. Who is coming to Disney plus next year. This is new Dr. Who the existing modern series is on HBO Max for who knows how long, presumably until the contract expires, at which point Disney will take it. Um, and then the classic series is even somewhere else. Uh, BritBox in the US. But this is the new, basically, relaunch of the show starting next November. Um, and the the old era just concluded um, last week in the UK. And all their old deals expired. It was on BBC America and the States. Uh, and and published broadcasters in some countries, and it was just scattered all over the world. And this is a deal where basically the BBC will run it in the UK and Ireland. Everywhere else in the world, it'll be on Disney+. Plus. Um, it's interesting. In one way, it's interesting because this is not not a franchise that Disney owns because because they can't own it right it is the property is the crown jewel of a public broadcaster so you're not going to be able to buy it but you can put money in and co-produce it and that's that's what's going on here 
Um, it's a so it's a and, and from the BBC's perspective, they have the flagship franchise, but the BBC has lots of political problems and budget problems and all of that. And they've got this thing that I think has a lot of extrinsic value. And, and like, how do you deal with that? And what they did was they made a deal with a an external production company called Bad Wolf, which is run by a bunch of former Doctor Who producers, actually, uh, and BBC executives. They're owned by Sony now. They're going to produce the show. So it's the first time that this this franchise flagship has been produced outside of BBC itself. And now they made the deal with Disney Plus. So so some of the funding for the production of this, probably a lot of it, is coming from Disney, who's going to have it everywhere except in the UK and Ireland. Um, it does have a lot of fallout. Um, like, like in the US, it was on BBC America Linear and then AMC Plus and then rolled to HBO Max. That's all cleared away. But if you're in Australia or New Zealand, for example, and it's been on your public broadcaster in those countries since, you know, the 60s, literally, um, it won't be anymore. It's going to be on Disney Plus there. So you'll need to pay for Disney Plus if you want to see more of it. But I think it's a, I think it's such a great idea. Again, talking about the, the Peacock and Netflix Girls 5 Eva deal. This feels similar to me, which is like the BBC doesn't have the wherewithal to make this thing on a level of a uh, even not even a Star Wars of a level of a Star Trek. Right. Um, but they don't have the money or the reach to do it because they're a, a public broadcaster in a, a specific region. And yet it has that potential. And um, for from Disney's perspective, it is at the level where maybe it's not Marvel or Star Wars, but it is kind of in that general category and it is a family friendly franchise in the UK for 60 years it's always been a show that was meant to be watched by parents and kids together which is not that common in a market or you know a target in the US except when you start to think about Marvel and Star Wars you're like oh but it kind of it kind of is so anyway mm-hmm. this is a a fascinating thing I'm curious what you th- you think I have been a Doctor Who fan since I was a teenager but um, but I look at this and I think it makes so much sense for everyone involved and yes I, I hope that it succeeds for everyone involved what do you think about this deal yeah I mean I think you summed it up extremely beautifully and also I 100% agree with every point that you made the thing about this specifically for Doctor Who is that Doctor Who it feels like an aging franchise, right? It feels like almost antiquated in a really beautiful way, which is funny because it produced Matt Smith and David Tennant. And like, well, it's a very beloved franchise right? still. But even the revival of the franchise, that was 2005, right? Right. So even if we just take this new era of the show, it's it's coming up 18 years. So even though it's a 60-year-old show, even the quote-unquote like new revival is aging. So the BBC and Doctor Who, uh, the team behind Doctor Who, are tasked with this really difficult um, situation, which I write about often, I advise clients on often, which is your 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 fan base is aging out. You're trying to figure out how to open it to a new generation. And there's a few ways to do that, right? You like bring in new talent that's a little bit younger. You go a completely different route like with the character and the franchise. You spin it off. You find different ways, uh, different entry points into the situation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, with Doctor Who, the big thing is like expanding that audience, finding new audience at a low lift way. And the easiest way to do that is to partner with Disney. The mm-hmm. easiest way is to be like, hey, you put us on your platform outside of the UK and Ireland. Um, you co-produce with us, which, by the way, worked out really well for Sony and Spider-Man when Marvel went in and was like, we'll co-produce with you. It's going to be a Marvel Studios thing. Like, we're going to we're going to oversee it. Um, and then we're also going to give the strong placement. We're going to be all involved. And we think that we want to have more family friendly friendly franchises. We want to kind of expand into something that's a little bit more adult than what we might have on our platform outside of Star Wars and Marvel. And so we find this really interesting way in. But for Disney... You know, it's kind of having another type of fantasy franchise on its platform that adds yeah. some value, but it's not a huge amount. I think the real winner in this is is BBC because they get to come out and really have someone invest in Doctor Who in the future of that franchise and really under the stewardship of teams that are exceptional at exactly this, at figuring out how to keep a franchise going and figure out how to en- uh, get new audiences involved. And I think also, if we think about people who watch Doctor Who for the most part in the United States, it tends to be people who either grew up with parents who were into it, and so they were kind of aware of what it was, or they discovered it via, like, Tumblr. And so Mm -hmm. they were kind of like, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to watch it. But actually watching Doctor Who in the United States is a complicated thing. It's like BBC America, 
but it's like different times and you're trying to figure it out. It's like watching, it's like talking to anime fans about trying to watch anime when it's occurring, uh, airing live. Like it's a whole situation. And so for the biggest thing that could happen to to the BBC and, and Doctor Who is for Disney to say, don't worry about that globally. We'll take yeah. care of it. It's like, it's we're going to yeah, you you know how to advertise when sort of when when it airs in the UK, and we will handle the rest of the world, and everyone will know, and everyone will have access to it, and it won't be the sliding scale of well, it's on cable, but then later it's on AMC Plus, but then after the season's over, it's on HBO Max, which is like, I mean, good. I I know multiple Doctor Who fans who just bought a a uh, an iTunes subscription to Doctor right. Who and, so that it would just drop the download the next day because they had no way they didn't have cable and they're like I I give up I'm not paying for AMC plus I'll just I'll just do it this way um I think it is I mean I mentioned Star Trek and I am also a, a Star Trek fan from when I was a little kid but like I don't think it, it, it Doctor Who is not the same but I think like Star Trek it's one of those things where you look at it and say this could be a thing on streaming that you could that would have a lot of value and and obviously Paramount Plus has has taken it and and run and I I think Doctor Who could be kind of like that in that multi, they could do multiple shows. Maybe it's not year round, but that they could get something out of it. And I do think, yeah, like you look at Star Wars and Marvel, it's not the same and it's not at that scale and it doesn't have the theatrical aspect of it at all. But it it fits in Disney Plus more than it doesn't. And and, you know, for everybody who's not in the U.K., uh, it will appear as a Disney Plus original, right? It will appear none, uh, you know, n- no different in in many ways from that. Just in the UK, where they know better, will will they think, oh, this is actually a BBC thing, right? And and this yeah, is, and it's, it's an international it, franchise, right? It's known. It's actually known kind of worldwide. So that's that's good for that's an asset that that BBC brings to the table for Disney Plus is that this is not just a thing. Actually, North America. And especially the U.S., not one of the stronger markets for identification of this franchise. It's actually got a lot of identification elsewhere. So that's interesting, right. too. Right. And the fact that this is a Disney Plus and not a Paramount Plus or even an Amazon Prime video goes such a long way. There's an inherent understanding amongst families that its its brand is, branding is safe. There's an inherent understanding amongst genre fans that it's quality. There's an inherent understanding among subscribers that they already have it. Right. It's not like I have to sign up for it. There's a very strong amount, number of people who already have Disney Plus. And so they don't have neither Disney nor the BBC really need to do much to get this in front of people's eyeballs. It's already there. And the upsides seem to vastly outweigh any potential negatives, which would be, you know, low viewership, low engagement at the price point that Disney is paying for it, which would decrease the value of the overall investment. But it seems to me like a pretty safe home run, depending on how things go. And the quality side of things, I mean, this is still a BBC show. So as long as people have liked Doctor Who over the last decade, and they have. I mean, that doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think it's it's really great. I, I really do think BBC comes out the victor in this, but you know, Disney Plus gets some increased engagement across the board, especially important as advertisers start to come in. And for um, people who are curious about, you talked about the production of it. The, so Bad Wolf, which is a studio, a little boutique studio that was set up by a bunch of former BBC people who actually worked on the relaunch of Doctor Who, got bought by Sony. Um, they have produced a bunch of prestige streaming TV. I think the, probably their most visible one is the His Dark Material series for HBO. And that is a big budget, modern fantasy series um, for streaming, built for streaming. Um and that I think is what the what the next phase of Doctor Who is going to look like. So if you if you're saying, oh well, I remember watching Doctor Who in 2006, and you know they shot it on video on on like uh, SD, and the the effects were primitive CGI, but they got the job done, and you could tell that this was on a budget. I'm sure it'll still be on a budget, but I think um, the new production group that's part of the thing that they bring to bear is that they actually have produced modern big budget fantasy TV for streaming and uh, and they're going to be able and now with Disney Plus as their partner right I, I feel like they're going to they're going to take their best swing at it and then we'll see what the quality of the actual show is but I think that mm-hmm. it's got a lot of potential and uh, yeah kind of a no brainer deal for Disney Plus I think because it's, it's yeah. I think it really is I never really considered it there was a lot of buzz that it was going to go to HBO Max but that was really sort of before the uh, the purchase and you know Zaslav coming in but uh, it I think it fits. I think it fits with the Disney Plus whole sort of premise of what kind of content they're doing. So mm-hmm. uh, next year, now we wait a year because it won't be out until November of next year. Um, 
related in the sort of nerd corner now. We're not calling it nerd corner, but it might be that. Uh, you did a piece at Puck and talked about Andor and Star Wars and the interesting, fascinating kind of two thoughts, two conflicting thoughts you need to hold in your head, which is on one level, Andor as a show has not been as successful in terms of the numbers, in terms of interest for Disney plus that, that it may have been a marketing challenge. Maybe people weren't interested in it, whatever the reasons the demand for it isn't great, but the reviews are great. And I'll make my little aside here. The show is very good, like very good quality. It is a, it is, I I don't know, I would say it's a cut above, like sometimes you set the bar for Star Wars and you're like, ah, that was good Star Wars. Andor, yeah. I think, is not just good Star Wars. I think Andor is good, like really, really good high level TV um, or, or a series of movies chopped into three episodes each for four movies worth because anyway storytelling uh so it it is it it is fascinating because it's like okay well you could say nobody's watching it or not nobody but like it's people are less interested in in it and it's kind of a a a flop but uh at the other hand you kind of look at it and say no 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 this is what star wars probably needs to be more like uh so walk me through um the the interesting thoughts that you had about Andor and what it means for the future of Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what we were talking about with Doctor Who. It's it's Star Wars is at this juncture where the question of, you know, how do you expand Star Wars uh, is is in question, right? The future film side is flailing in a way that my colleague at Puck, Matt Bellany, wrote about where no one really knows what's happening with any of those projects. And it seems like the next project is like 2025. Like, yeah, it's the, the, you know, Star Wars, which was a film franchise for 40 years and never had a TV show has very quickly become a TV franchise that sometimes has movies, which is a very interesting shift for that company. But if we look at what works for Star Wars or what Star Wars has been doing, it hasn't really been taking advantage of the sandbox. It's kind of like, how can we tie things back to Luke Skywalker? Sometimes very literally, uh, and sometimes, you know, kind of just within that world and with characters that people really know. And so what that does is play upon it plays upon nostalgia it doesn't really increase anything. And so you kind of have this audience that isn't going to grow, which means they're not necessarily going to grow into the merchandise merchandising side of things. And then in 10 years from now, the kids who are coming up. What is their Star Wars? And so when we think uh, so that's one side of it. The other side of it is that the the level of Star Wars shows that have come out with the exception of Mandalorian have been relatively low quality. That's not my I like them. I like them a lot. Please don't yell at me. That is according to like Rotten Tomatoes as a Metacritic. It's looking at kind of IMDb. It's looking at aggregate scores. It's been and demand for each of the shows has been faltering. So if we look at demand for uh, Mandalorian being the highest, each new show has kind of had a, a faltering level of demand. And so there's this audience of adults who also want something Star Wars that is good, that is adult, that is not necessarily tied into the nostalgia that is not necessarily tied into lightsabers, but like what can Star Wars be if you have 10, 12 hours to do something with Star Wars? What does that look like? And so the combo of those things is something like Andor, which is not necessarily tied into the Skywalker saga. So it really doubles down on this being for a new generation of Star Wars fans who are looking for something to make their own Star Wars. And it also feels prestigious, both in the quality of the show, like every shot is beautiful. The pacing of the show is a little bit slower than other Star Wars shows. The fact that it, again, is not tied into the, the Skywalker saga. There, there's all these things that are happening that make it feel inherently like it's standing on its own, like it's the beginning of something new. And that in a sea of oversaturation and poor quality, it is a very strong quality type show. The flip side to which Jason was just talking about is that the viewership for it is the lowest of any Star Wars live action series. So people are not necessarily tuning into it as much as they were The Mandalorian, they were Obi-Wan, they were Boba Fett. The question, which is kind of what the puck piece got to, is does that matter? And my argument is that no. I mean, it does not sense that like, you obviously want everything to be a major hit. But if the goal of this, which is similar to the goal of She-Hulk and Miss Marvel, is to introduce the concept of Star Wars to uh, in a different way to a new audience or to tap upon an audience that is not being served by the, the current market, then you really need to lean into these shows and give them a few years to find their... Um, find their audience and find out what they can do for the franchise as a whole. They're kind of new gateway entry points. And that's and that's a massive part of this equation. And so I think Andor is going to be the type of show that in a year from now is looked back on as one of the, you know, 
best Star Wars shows in the same way that we looked at Rogue One, which the show is based on as a as a whole community. And we're like, Rogue One's a really great Star Wars movie, even if at the time people were like, I don't really know where I stand on it. Now there's this kind of reflection of like, oh, I really love what that movie did for Star Wars. And I think that is what the franchise needs right now. What One of the things I bring up often when I talk about this is in the heydays of kind of Marvel comics, post the 60s into the 70s, 80s, at the time of the speculator market of comics, when everybody was buying comics because they were becoming valuable. It was like the first time that people, that collectors were kind of becoming a thing, right? You had all these things happening and people would buy a lot of comics and Marvel comics at the time doubled down on this by introducing a bunch of new characters that all intertwined with the, with one another, a bunch of different comic lines. And the idea was that if the demand was super high, then they would just increase supply to meet it. What happened was that the quality of these comics deterred and it, by an insane amount and became too expensive as a hobby. So people were not interested, and it became too expensive, so they stopped buying. And then what happened? Well, 1996, Marvel Comics went bankrupt, right? They couldn't, they had way too much supply now, there was no demand, and they were just, they just ran out of money. And so I think I use that often when I'm looking at what Marvel and Star Wars need to avoid in the streaming age, because there's this, one, demand from kind of the higher ups to create the an, an insane amount of Star Wars and Marvel shows, both on the live action and animated side. Um, and there seems to be this never, the question, uh, sorry, the keyword here being seems, never ending source of demand from the fan base. But what happens is that if the quality of these shows continues to deteriorate, what that eventually affects is people's overall sentiment to the franchise as a whole. And then what that really does is affects the films, where all of a sudden people are like, I don't necessarily know if I'm really invested in this enough that I want to go watch the movie. Key point is uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which did very well. But hypothetically, there were a lot of people who were like, I don't want to have to watch WandaVision to get this movie. Like, I don't I don't want to have that be this experience. So I'm just not going to do it. Right. That if that continues, you know, times 10, you get to a point where there's real concern for these franchises that are tent poles for the streaming service. And so all of this kind of trickles down into Andor and She-Hulk and Miss Marvel. And it's like these shows are not necessarily the most watched, which is the key term here. They're not the most watched, they're not the most engaged with, but what they're doing and what they're building up for the reputation of the brand and what they're doing for engaging with audiences who are ready to walk away from the franchise and engaging with audiences who were never interested in the franchise is far more valuable in the long term than just doing more or less the same stuff and kind of keeping people satiated like Prozac. You know what I mean? Kind of like, well, I don't really feel anything, but I'm going to watch it because it's what it's Star Wars. And so that's kind of my argument is that Andor is in this place within the Star Wars moment of like a pivotal moment for that for that 55 or yeah, 50 year 50 year franchise um, at a moment when it's no longer a film franchise. It's a TV franchise. You know, what does the TV show say about that franchise? You don't necessarily want to point to Obi-Wan and Boba Fett. Mando is kind of the quintessential Star Wars show and Andor is the quintessential example of what Star Wars can become mm-hmm. in the same way that She-Hulk was kind of an example of what Marvel could do if they kind of move away from stuff. So I think even though they're the least it watched, I think if we look back on it in a few years, the value of those shows and what they hopefully do. And we, this is this is the big if. And this, if this doesn't happen, then everything is it's a moot point. But if it does happen the value of the franchise increases because the the longevity of the franchise increases. So that's kind of my theory on Andor. Yeah, I would throw in there too that we're we're talking about this actually a letter that we got that's very long, so I'm probably not going to read it from listener Billy. Um it touched on you, another Billy. another aspect of this, which is the focus that so much of streaming seems to have on immediate binge viewing, right? This is the thing we talked about, about Neil Gaiman saying, please watch Sandman soon because Netflix needs to know about it. And Billy's point was, you know, I discover shows all the time that have been around a while uh, and I catch up with it. And, you know, I, I and, and what Billy said is I, I watched Why the Last Man a few weeks after it came out and it was already canceled, it turns out. And it's like, did I watch it too late? And, I you know, part of my response to Billy is um, there is probably some truth in the fact that if a show gains heat after the fact, they'll notice. Right. And. and and also the numbers that they're seeing might have been so extreme that it they knew that it was not going to get the heat after the fact. But if it if it happens, they're going to notice. But I think I would say when you're playing franchise games like you are with Star mm-hmm. Wars or Marvel, there is something that Bill, what Billy said rang, rang true to me, which is 
in a franchise, that stuff has a life and a value that can really accumulate over time. So like, and or the storytelling, I've heard a lot of people say, I'm just going to watch it when it's done. Uh, and so maybe it will it will be a grower in terms of it o- over time. But also there's this question of sort of like, do you introduce new characters? Does it interlink with the franchise in some other ways that when you're on the Disney Plus interface in two years, watching something that interlinks with She-Hulk, you go, are driven back to She-Hulk or you're driven back to Andor later on. So I think that that's another part of this, too, is that if these lead somewhere they have more value because they're in the box of the franchise than they would if they were just sort of a random standalone, unfortunately, like something like why the last man, like a new daredevil show is going to come out. And if there's a reference to, or an appearance by she Hulk in that, that's going to drive people back to she Hulk on Disney plus they're going to, they're going to use their algorithm to do it. They're going to put their curation to work, to do it. Similarly, the next time we see some of the characters from like Hawkeye somewhere, you guess what's going to happen. Right. People are going to watch Hawkeye who did, who maybe skipped over it the last time. And right. so I think that's part of the story too, is that, is that we get so focused and I know it's important, right. Of like, what's the demand right now for something, but franchises, I mean, they want the demand right now, but they're also playing the long game. I think they're capable of playing the long game too. Yes, I think so too. And th- this is in no way like, uh, uh, it was when I wrote this piece and somebody was like, Star Wars isn't dying. And I was like, I'm not trying to say that Star Wars is dying. I-, I think Star Wars will be fine. But, you know, how does Star Wars continue to be as big as it is today? Right. That, or in 10 years from now, that it is today. And, you know, today versus 2015 when uh, Force Awakens comes and- back, like, you know, it doesn't that, know like, what it wants to be, right? It's not dying, but it is like they haven't made a movie and they have no movies that they seem to be able to get in production. It, it's very much sort of like, what is Star Wars going forward? That is the part. That right. It's not dying, but they are having a kind of a crisis, an identity crisis. And maybe Andor helps them. Um, and you could argue even if it was the what not to do. I, I I feel like Book of Boba Fett was a little bit of a oh we went too far here, and Andor is like a ah that is an interesting thing we could do with Star Wars. And right now that's where I think Star Wars is. Is like who am I, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm not, I thought Star Trek was the TV franchise and I was the movie franchise. What's happening now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly it. All right. Um. Uh, well, we, you know, we'll keep watching. Andor is great, by the way. People should watch it. It's it's really good. Um, just a little endorsement there. It's really good. Um, Netflix. You also wrote a puck piece. It's been a couple of weeks. So there were two puck pieces since we were we last talked. Uh, but I, I wanted to just do a little quick Netflix uh, check in. Uh, they came up with their results. They were pretty positive. People seem to feel a little bit better about Netflix. They also are are doubling down on some of their statements, being a little more defiant. You know, they doubled down about not not breaking and ha- put throwing their movies into theaters for like you know a month or a month and a half, and instead like no, we don't want theatrical. Isn't our point? Our point is to get people on get our movies on Netflix because all the people who are going to watch them are going to watch them on netflix uh and you know they but they're also doing things that used to be sacred cows that are now part of the strategy where they're like we're going to do an ad tier and we're going to crack down on password sharing and uh we we added a new feature that lets you transfer your profile out of the account that you've been sharing with someone and into your own account so you don't lose any of your profile data when uh when netflix makes you uh not share a password anymore um they're not going to load as much stuff into fourth quarter of the year because there's too much stuff to watch right now so i just wanted to check in with you overall um you know what what are you thinking about netflix right now it seems like they're a little bit like there was that moment where it was like oh geez netflix they're 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 in trouble what are they gonna do uh and they and they've made a bunch of moves but now it seems like that are they are they just talking a good game or have they kind of uh figured out who they want to be I said this line to someone a few days ago, and we were in full transparency, tipsy, and I we were talking about Netflix right. as I do, deep thoughts. as I do, yeah, as I do when I'm, when I'm with, I'm fun to have drinks with. I just think about Netflix, um, and I, we're talking about the ad tier coming out, and kind of the reason that, that people were really positive about Netflix in part was one, you know, the subscriber uh, decay, slowdown was was there so people were kind of excited about that and there was a big q4 coming up so they're excited about that and then greg peters 
um, who's the COO, who seems very primed to be the next CEO of Reed Hastings ever were to step down, um, kind of went in and talked about ads and how excited they are about the advertising and the, the $60 CPM, which is, you know, twice what kind of like a Hulu would charge for the amount of money that advertisers have to pay uh, in order to kind of generate the business, the, the business of advertising. And so all these things are super positive. Um, and the thing about Netflix is that it's in a wait, a, a wait and hold pattern, right? Hold and wait pattern because everything is like dependent on this advertising tier. Like, what does this do for Netflix? And we, I was talking about what Netflix has become over the last decade. I said something like the idea that a streaming service would never consider ads can only come from a place of true and total monopoli- monopolization. Like it can only come from a place of we are the only sole streaming service that people are really going to want. And therefore, we don't have to include ads because we're always going to have subscribers coming in and they're going to stay with us. Right. It's, it's that kind of idea. And with Netflix, as they move into an ad space, as they start to maybe consider theatricality, even if Ted Sarando says they're not, it, um, I, I think that's untrue. And so as they start to think about theatricality, as they start to become a traditional media company operating in a new media forum, the thing that's really exciting about Netflix is that it's not limited by its own. I don't want to use the word arrogance, but it's not limited by its own kind of beliefs from 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 eight years ago. It is not limited by this idea that it has to be black and white. Suddenly you throw some grays in there and the potential for Netflix as a company, both on the financial side, but also within the cultural zeitgeist side and also within just the kind of experience side that people have with it is really exciting. And that revenue is going to help Netflix evolve into a company that develops better merchandising efforts, better ancillary revenue efforts, better immersive experiences or whatever, you, whatever it might be better, you know, video games. There creates a world where Netflix gets to potentially be a company that isn't just a tentacle of an octopus. It is the octopus that has all these tentacles, which is what Google and Apple and all the other fan companies have. And so when I think about what Netflix is, I think Netflix is at, you know, if, if we think about it in the terms of like a butterfly, right? Caterpillar becomes a butterfly and there's that whole process. I think Netflix was a, bu- a butterfly and that butterfly had its life and experienced it and kind of died off. And now there's this new caterpillar who's about <laughs> to become a new butterfly. And it is the Netflix 2.0, right? It's Netflix 3.0, which is like, what does this company become? I've always been really bullish, not in terms of like a financial advice. Wait, please don't take financial advice from Jason or I for all these mm, things. But, but. But I've always been really bullish on Netflix as a company because at the end of the day, there there are some massive issues ahead of them. They're, they're still facing subscriber slowdown. They're still facing potential ceilings in the United States and Canada region. They're still facing huge competition from source from, from Disney and HBO Max and the other ones that are about to expand even more global. But the level of penetration and the low churn that Netflix does see and the increased revenue that the, or sorry and the, the 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 low churn even alongside increased price hikes like there's a, a a facet of netflix that is just so wholly ingrained into people's entertainment experience that that's not going to go anywhere so being able to add on to it and build up as they pursue other innovation uh, innovative opportunities is like very exciting for netflix even if it means that they have to first become a bit of an old media company to then become a new tech company that is I think a very positive thing for Netflix. So I, I'm positive on Netflix. That doesn't mean there aren't huge hurdles in their their future. There are some massive ones. Um, but I hope that this kind of experience over the last little bit has really taught them that it's not the, again the, like that that moment of like here we can feel this way because we came from a place of true monopolization. Is kind of gone away. And it's funny, I had this conversation with some friends who work at Facebook and we we're talking about the stock. And I said, how do you guys feel? And they were like, you know, this happened before with like Instagram. Like, th- like this has not not happened before. Um, and the question about whether it works out for the metaverse is like, who knows? Like, but but they're like, you know, we're kind of going to see and we're going to just try our best to make to make sure that we only do better. And with Netflix, you know, Netflix has, has had huge issues in the past and they've come back from it and they've, they've restructured strategy and they figured things out. And what I know about that company is they've got brilliant people working for them. They've got good revenue. You know, their cash flow is, <laughs> if you talk to the people in the bear market, the cash flow is one of those major hurdles that we're talking about. But, um, and, and of course, where everything goes with inflation is kind of, you know, the big, big looming rain cloud over all this conversation. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't, yeah, I think positive Netflix thoughts, which are rare for me. I'm usually not, but I'm 
I think there's a turning point to this company coming. That caterpillar is just doing a lot of eating and pooping right now, but it's going to go in. It's going to make a chrysalis, and then uh, a but- butterfly is going to come out. That that is, <laughs> I I love it. Um, and yeah, it just it feels like this is what they had to do. They had to kind of take it on the chin and realize that they needed to make some changes. And now they're yes. back. They're back at it. So uh, we'll wa- watch for the butterfly. We'll watch for the butterfly. It's coming. Um, sports corner time. Steven put in some music for Sports Corner. So I love thank Sports you. Corner. Thank you, Steven. Um, you pointed out uh, over the weekend that to watch every NFL game that was on in your local market this week, uh, this past weekend, you would need uh, cable or a VMPVD service or a TV antenna or NFL Plus and Amazon Prime Video and ESPN Plus. Or, alternately, ESPN Plus, Prime, Peacock, Paramount, and a friend who has cable for Monday Night Football? Um, This is, uh, the extra complication here was that there was a London game that was only on ESPN Plus. And so that made it like yet another service that you would need if you wanted to watch your football. Uh, And I, I just... What you said goes for, I think, all of Sports Corner, as we've discussed it on this show, which is sports viewing, exhausting, expensive. <laughs> I I just, I just, it, I think part of it was like I the feed from ESPN Plus on the weekend for the nine o'clock game, which was a boring game, like, was like so terrible. So I was mad that the game was boring and I had to use ESPN Plus for it and the feed wasn't mm-hmm. even working that well. And I was just like over it. But yeah, I was thinking about it. I was like, this, I mean, we have YouTube TV and so it's a little bit easier. But I was like, if we didn't have YouTube TV, we'd have to, and you don't have an antenna, you'd have to go back and forth between like three or four different streaming services yeah. to watch certain games, hoping that the feed doesn't cut out. And I will say they've gotten much better about it um, uh, in, in, recent, in, in recent months. But and then the big thing, of course, the, the crown jewel on this is like even if you have all these things, you still need some form of cable to watch ESPN. Like you for yeah. Monday Night Football there, and and then like Amazon on Thursday. And so I think, you know, someone pointed out on Twitter, and I think they're right that like, it's not necessarily more expensive; it just is more exhausting. Like I just miss being able to like open up a cable bot like a the whatever programming thing on a cable box um use your remote all the sports are in one section they're like in right. the 500s or whatever and you just scroll through until you find what you're looking for versus this i have to like open up to and it sounds so first world like i really understand this is a first world problem but like i have to like remember which game is on which network and then which network is associated with which streaming service and then open up the streaming service and then watch the game. And then it's it's just it's exhausting. Yeah. Again, this sounds so first world problem. But but like sports used to be not as exhausting. And then I saw someone on Twitter. And I just want to point this out before I hand it over to Jason. But somebody on Twitter was like, you can just go to your favorite sports bar. And I was like, it is nine in the morning. Like I, the only sports bars open are European football bars right. because they and also I don't want to go to a bar at nine in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I just <laughs> anyways, it is. Uh, yeah, you're right. We we got a letter. I'm I'm rolling a lot of the letters into the the segments this time, but that's fine. Uh, from Troy in the nine oh seven, and and it's a similar thing that that I think is one of the challenges here is there are a few things that are just unavailable. If you are not a cable or VMPVD, like your YouTube TV, my Fubo, uh, you can't get them. And ESPN is the big one. ESPN, and, and this was Troy's letter, because Troy begins the letter, I'm not a sports person generally, right? And and I think this is it. It's not, not Troy hasn't gone through what some of us sports people have had to go through with this. But Troy's big question was, there was a game on ESPN Plus and I had to download it and log in and that was a pain, but I, but, but I watched it. This week, I tried to watch a game on ESPN. And what Troy did is uh, do what you would think you would do, which is to go to ESPN, try to install, try to log in, all that, and then it says, "Sorry, you need to, you need a cable login." And as Troy put it, it's not 1999, so I don't have a cable provider. But this is the thing, and this is one of the great confusions of mm-hmm. our current sports era: is ESPN gets so much money from cable companies, whether you mm-hmm. watch it or not, that it has app or not Apple. Disney has not. 
bitten the bullet and said we're putting all of the ESPN linear content also on streaming and you can pay us for it. They because they're going to lose a huge amount of money because their cable partners are going to get really angry with them. Uh, or it's or they're contractually obligated to pay them or drop them or I mean whatever the reason ESPN is a cash cow they're not willing to slaughter. And so you end up in this situation where it's true there's ESPN plus but it doesn't contain ESPN. You can only get ESPN from cable or a VMPVD like YouTube TV or Fubo. And so you end up in Troy's situation, which is, well, wait a second, I'm a cord cutter and I want to watch a game and it's on ESPN and I have ESPN Plus. Where is it? And the answer is, it's not there. It's only on cable. It's ridiculous. And at some point, the dynamics will change, right? And that, and, and Disney will find a reason to make some form of ESPN games available somewhere else. But, you know, the reason the money is so good is in part because it's a way to keep people on cable. <laughs> the ESPN keeps right. people I mean, on cable. And it's it's like one of the only networks that keeps people on cable and um, yeah. maybe TNT for basketball. But, but I will say my bet is within three years, closer to the three-year mark, of that of that range uh espn ott will be available it'll cost like 30 bucks yeah i think espn plus gets rolled into espn so they automatically kick you know the i, th- I think it's like a thing where then that and that subscriber race i think will get like a promotional for the first year you can have espn for like half price right so they're only moving from like seven bucks to like 15 bucks like you know what i mean like it's kind of like we're gonna give you this whole thing and you get this um everyone else comes in at 30 bucks and I think that will do so well for Disney. Oh, 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 and yeah. I think people will just be like, sure, whatever. And I think it's inevitable that it will happen. Um, and and relatively soonish because of this exact reason, Troy, and also because Disney knows there's a market for it and they and they don't want to be tied yeah. to don't get me wrong, ESPN makes a lot of money for Disney. Like it's it, it's it's one of their biggest core revenue drivers uh of anything that they have. But if they can take away the 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 relationship they have with the cable oh sorry with the 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 telcos or the cable providers and bring that in-house uh and kind of make 80 to 100 percent of the revenue versus like 75 to 80 percent of the revenue um like it's gonna be a whole thing especially as they bring advertisers in and they can charge if they wanted to like 60 dollars cpm to be on espn ott there's like a whole thing that i think happens with disney in the next three years Mm. where they kind of look at the moment of like this is the time to like move away from cable we're going to go and bring it ott because we think we can get more revenue out of a huge subscriber base online than a smaller subscriber base on cable that's my bet my bet is three maybe three and a half years 30 32 dollars would be would be my bet yeah and and for now the best way to think about espn plus is espn plus is essentially a product the plus means a different thing we will do our draft of pluses at some point here uh the plus thing means it's supplemental to ESPN, which is not so. So if they if they move all of ESPN over, you're right. You you basically want a product that is ESPN streaming, and then maybe they also offer that supplemental product for people on cable. That's what ESPN Plus is right now. But the the big product is going to be everything that's on ESPN is now available um, for you to watch uh, on as an over the top person without any. Uh, cable or vmpvd so um but we're not there yet that's that's the thing so it's in some ways it's one of the final shoes to drop i think um because it's a thing that keeps people on cable and the same will i would say the same will probably be true for other live sports like tnt with the nba is that at some point you'll be a there'll be a way for you to spend a lot of money and get all of the tnt basketball stuff too even though it right now it's only available on cable. It'll happen because like you said, that there will be that imperceptible moment where the risk of not going and the money you're leaving on the table from people who want to give you money and you get to take it all because you don't have a middleman in the cable companies will be too much. And they'll be like, all right, we're going to do it. And we're already seeing the cracks in previous sports corners. We talked about how like, the the regional sports are doing this the the LA Clippers now have their clipper streaming thing where you pay them money and you get every game that's on the local cable is now just you get it uh it's all starting to happen i i thought it would take longer honestly i thought that the that the they would hold out longer but i i think 
you're right. It's it's happening now. It's happening. Three and a half years. We'll check back here in three and a half years. We'll see where ESPN is. <laughs> or it'll be before that. It'll be earlier. And uh, and you'll say, see, I told you so. Even more so. Um, before we go, just have, uh, it's been about an hour. Um, let's do one letter. We're going to do one letter here. And this letter is from David. And David says, Julia has noted a few times that streaming service revenue from ad-supported subscriptions is close or even greater than ad-free full-price subscriptions. Are streaming services on a long arc to reinvent cable TV where we all pay lots of money and still have to watch lots of ads with our shows, except this time there will be no TiVo to save us with ad-skipping technology? Love to your mothers, David. What do you think? <laughs> R.I.P. TiVo. I love TiVo. Oh, um, yeah. um, so... No, I think so. Most of these streaming services would rather you not watch, but you you pay for the ad free tier. Uh, like like they, they that's what they would love. What they realize is that it's going to cap off their money because there's not going to be that many people who want to pay sixteen twenty dollars for Netflix, whatever it might be. So what the ad revenue does is just one allows them to make different types of shows. It allows them to um invest that additional revenue to other business streams, and three, it just really allows them to continue growing their subscriber base. Uh, ad revenue is there's there's a line which is like advertising is television and television is advertising it's always been the case uh and so i don't think we're going back to cable i think what you're seeing happen is streaming services that existed in this kind of again what i was just saying about how like you could only say you're not gonna have an ad free tier if you operate from a place of total monopolization right because you control every single viewer if you don't have that then advertising is the only way to kind of consistently increase your revenue alongside an ad-free option uh, while continuing to grow subscribers instead of seeing what Netflix has been seeing, which is this kind of slowdown, if not outright decay of subscribers. So I don't think that we're ever going to get back to a place where everything is everything is advertisements everywhere. Those ad-free tiers are still very important to the companies because the client base that comes from those ad-free tiers is very specific to some of their business plans. Um, the ad-supported tier is just an absolute necessity like this was always going to be the case in the same way that i think what it looks more like yeah minus the skipping element you know if we think about youtube right like youtube was an ad is an ad-based platform that offered an ad-free tier right which is youtube premium and they want people to buy youtube premium because people who are paying for something monthly are more likely to be engaged with it this is this in terms of like use it like there's a value proposition that comes from them paying for something um and they, that, that experience is a better experience for them but youtube is a business that relies on ad money television is a business that relies on ad money and now netflix is kind of this first major media company to say we rely on subscriber revenue but we are also introducing advertising because we believe this will reach a demographic that we were not able to reach. We are hitting a ceiling due to competition and inflation. We want to be able to continue to grow to invest in content that brings more subscribers in. And the goal always is to try and convert the ad supported to the ad free. Um, whether or not that happens, we'll see. But that's kind of it's kind of like when you look at how Peacock has had their tiers. It's the same kind of thing. It's like we're you're going to try to convert the ad free to the ad, same as HBO Max. They they. You'd certain op certain features aren't there that you kind of try to do, but you need both in order to increase your average revenue per user and just increase revenue across the board in general. Right. It's the it's the total revenue that they're growing there, but but yeah, the the person paying a lot a lot extra every month to not see the ads is a very profitable customer. But but I do think if you're not if you want to save some money, you are going to end up in a situation where you've got a lot of stuff at the ad the ad tier, right? The difference is mm -hmm. going to be, yeah, one, you aren't going to be able to skip the commercials. And two, you can pay more and make the commercials disappear, which we could never do. I mean, you paid – you could. You pay TiVo to do it. Right? So so now uh, you just pay the, the provider to not see it. But uh, yes. I, want, I want there to be um, some of these uh, fast channels like Pluto that oh, are yeah. free with ad support. It's like, guys, let me pay you something to not see your ads, right? Like – for the nonlinear stuff where they're like, like, I just don't, I don't need, I, I want to watch old episodes of Jeopardy. That's great. But I don't want to see your ads. I just don't want to see your ads. I'll pay you. They're not listening yet. Maybe someday. Uh, that brings us to the end of this episode. I know it's hard to believe episode 30. Uh, November is still here, but episode 30 is come and gone. Uh, if you have a question for us, a letter that you'd like to send in, send us an email downstream at relay.fm. 
If you're a Relay FM member, you can send us a message in the Discord, question mark, ask downstream, or just tweet at us at downstream pod. Love to your mothers. We love hearing from you. You can find Director of Strategy Julia at Loudmouth Julia on Twitter. And of course, parrotanalytics.com and puck.news every couple of weeks and in the newsletter, which uh, is also really great. Uh, that's going to be on our plus draft. Your uh, what I'm streaming, what is it called? What I'm hearing plus? What I'm streaming plus? I don't know. <laughs> what I'm hearing plus. What I'm I kind of love what I'm streaming plus, but what I'm hearing plus. What I'm, because Bellany does what I'm hearing about yeah. Hollywood stuff, and then you do the streaming add-on, which has the plus on it, which is hilarious. Anyway, I I have found great value in paying for Puck.News. People can check it out there. Um, I'm, Thanks, uh, I give away a lot of my stuff for free at SixColors.com, although some of it you have to pay for. And I'm Jay Snell on Twitter. Uh, until next time, Julia, it's been a pleasure as always. Always, always a pleasure. Bye.